Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, and of Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace. For an overview, you can go to trondenheim.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurized.org slash sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me, including how to book me for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Mark, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Trond. It's great to be here. Look, we're going to talk about simple things, nothing complicated, uh, just the future of computing and, and, and quantum, which is something that really virtually nobody understands. Well, how do you feel about uh, the topic? As as a physicist or as a as a person? Um, as no, uh, in terms of the overwhelming nature of it, you you clearly don't have it. We're, we're going to get to your background, but uh, I just wanted to let's loosen it up a little bit. Quantum is kind of daunting. It, it, it is, and um, the, the thing about quantum, it's been around for about a hundred years. It, it was around the, in the early 1900s that we started learning that there is this thing that we now call quantum physics, and it sounds crazy. On the face of it, a lot of the things that we do when we study, but that is how nature works. We have overwhelming evidence to that fact. And now we're actually building computers based on this premise to let us yep. do really interesting things. And so I'm I'm still kind of in shock that we have all this. Yeah. So Mark, you uh, you are the senior quantum evangelist at, at Quan uh, Continuum. Um, obviously, a physicist, uh, or maybe not so obviously, because we'll talk about this. You know that I, I I asked you know about the slight sort of difficulty of this issue, but there is now I think the scope that quantum can become more understandable, and I want to explore this a bit, but I, I want to tease you uh, a bit too. So you here have a PhD in theoretical physics. 
and you are the uh, evangelist. And the question is simply, do you really need a PhD in theoretical (laughs) physics to evangelize quantum? Uh, This is just, uh, it baffles me. It it helps. Um, I talk to a variety of people and some are, are quantum experts and I can, I can talk at that level with them. And some have only vaguely heard about quantum computing and that's, that's perfectly fine too. And so, um, so, so yeah, the, the, the word evangelist in Greek means bringer of the good news, which is why it it kind of started in a religious context, but in the early nineties at Apple computer, actually, um, it, it was introduced to the tech world because it was separate from sales, um, in, in that they, the, the evangelists, they didn't have quotas or anything like that. It was about creating excitement about the Macintosh in that context. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I understand I've also had a, an evangelist title. I'm just saying it's it's just pretty interesting. It obviously depends who you're evangelizing to. Uh, but it does say something about the nascent state of development of this uh, field because you're obviously also evangelizing to specialists. You're not just evangelizing to the general public here. Your Your, your role must be to kind of massage the industry as such and other experts and you know admittedly uh, mark not everybody on this planet phd or not really fully grasps the the impact of quantum or or which we're going to talk about wh- where we are right now that, that's certainly true in fact the overwhelming majority of people that i speak with don't seem to grasp how big of a revolution this will be um, in, in tech there's there's a lot of things that always claim they're going to be the next big deal and and some of them are they do become important, but I think quantum is going to be one of the things that people really didn't see coming until after the fact. So tell me, let's let's jump into it a little bit and tell me more about that. Why is it that quantum is different from? I mean, you know, I I have people on the show who say this about all technologies, yep. right? So there will be someone who says, you know, everyone underestimates. They think that, you know, this uh, energy technology, you know, is always 40 years in the future. We're not going to talk about those things today, but uh, but that's not true. But why is it in your mind that quantum is real and something to talk about now uh, and having real impact? And then, you know, I also want to unmask it a little bit and let's try to look a tiny bit under the hood but but why is it that it's real now sure sure so i'd first like to go back about 40 years ago um this physicist richard feynman who who many of you have probably heard of um he was studying certain problems that we use computers to solve specifically chemistry and we've we've known again for about 100 years what the equations are when we do chemistry simulations to figure out the properties of a molecule and so feynman was thinking about this and he realized that as a molecule gets bigger, the number of, of equations, the number of interactions, scales so rapidly that computers would never be able to solve this for anything in- interesting. And yes, computers get better every year, but even that wasn't nearly enough to compensate for this. And so he said, we need to build a different type of computer. And this would be a computer based on quantum physics because that's how nature actually works. These equations were quantum equations. And so we need to be able to to keep up with that. And this was a great idea 40 years ago, but no one knew how to actually do this. And so there was a lot of academic work on it. As you mentioned with other fields, it was sort of always years in the future. And then about 10 years ago, there were certain breakthroughs that made people realize maybe this would actually work. We could actually 
feasibly build quantum computers. And 10 years ago, you're ten, saying? About 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, around 2012. Um, so that is quite unique, though, because the technologies that I usually hear this from, they literally, you know, have had a, a body of researchers and, and innovation going on for, for literally 30, 40 years. Uh, but you're saying the breakthrough here is much more recent. Yes, there was academic progress. People did think about these things and, and worked on it. It was about 10 years ago that they, they realized we might actually be able to build quantum computers. In, in a, in a and and what is that uh, realization based on? Because in, in other fields that are struggling to gain, I guess, commercial breakthroughs or, or to actually build something, it, it is just that the infrastructure has to be prepared first. Or, or there's technical challenges that are might be expensive because it's an early stage. So you know, you're building something and it just costs an enormous amount to build something pretty simple that just didn't exist before. But once you have that, you know, you have you know a critical mass of people are are doing it. Then you can share some costs, and and then they make progress. Where where are these obstacles that suddenly kind of they loosened up ten years ago? Yeah. So the obstacle was that quantum computers are based on something called quantum bits or qubits, and yeah. and, a, and a qubit can be a zero and a one at the same time. And furthermore, qubits over here can be entangled or have a correlation with these other qubits over here. And so okay, Mark, Mark, this yeah. is the issue because yeah, yeah. that is a, it's a sentence I could even say. You know, yeah. qubits, uh, yeah. they can both be zero and one. It's actually very easy to just say what you just said. Yep. What but was understanding what that means is really, really difficult. So, zeros and ones bring us back. That's obviously how computers work. They're binary, they have these two states, and then you can read information based on it, and you can make these long, long sequences that are you know, a language, and, and you can do math based on it. Now you're saying this type of computer can be both zero and one. That, that's right. Just unpa unpack that a tiny bit. Sure, sure. So I sometimes think about this. Um, if you had a queen on a table, it can be either heads or tails. It, it's one or the other, right? And that's a lot like a bit, a, a zero or one. A qubit, a quantum bit, is sort of like a queen spinning in space in that it could pick any orientation. And it could happen to be heads or tails, but it's also free to pick any any orientation. And so in that sense, you might say it's it's heads and tails at the same time. And so in a similar way, this is how qubits behave. They can be zero and one at the same time. And so the technical challenge was building these qubits. So so these are physical objects and, the, and they're intrinsically quantum. And so what the challenge was, was building these qubits so that they did what you wanted them to do. They were sensitive enough to your control system that you could control them, but they were insensitive enough to the outside world that they didn't inadvertently do what you didn't want them to do. And so it's it's very difficult to build these. And so it was about 10 years ago that they started being able to do this and um, with, with high enough fidelity or you know truthfulness to what you're telling them to do um, that they thought this might actually work, that they could scale it up to build quantum computers. So one of the things that I have as this very, very big question mark around quantum, and you know, maybe we can unpack this a little bit too, is, is risk. Because you're saying you can control it within an acceptable parameter so that you know, it, it, the qubits are doing what you think they're doing and what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, a, a big 
challenge and, and risk is is you know basically controlling technology. It would seem to me that we are still, however, at a pretty early stage. So you you know, presumably, you'd want to control them even better. Uh, absolutely, you can always do better, and and we have we've made enormous progress in ten years, and there, there's actually a, a critical point that one would have to reach, and we actually are just reaching that this year. In fact, just in the past few weeks, our company made a major announcement in this direction. And the, the critical milestone is that first you have to accept that, that these qubits, they will always make mistakes. At, at, there's some chance they will always make a mistake, and that's fine because even bits make mistakes. Occasionally, a transistor will do the wrong thing. But you have to do something called error correction. And on a normal computer with bits, it's actually very simple to do error correction because you simply take a, a bit and you make two copies of it so that you have three of them. And so in the unlikely event that one of them makes a mistake, if two out of three are telling you one thing, that's probably the correct answer. And so error correction is, is very simple to implement. But the reason that this doesn't work for a quantum computer is because if a qubit makes a mistake, first, there's, there's a rule in quantum physics that you can't copy quantum information. You can move it around, but you can't make a copy. So we can't even make that triplication of the qubit. Mm -hmm. The second mm -hmm. rule in quantum physics is that you can't measure it without disturbing it. And so measuring it to identify whether a mistake has been made destroys the quantum information. We, we say it collapses the wave function. And so that's two good reasons why quantum error correction you might think it's impossible from what I just said, and I probably would have believed that. Fortunately, someone much smarter than myself uh, thought about this, and um, and his name's Peter Shore. And so he actually worked out a very clever way of doing quantum error correction. But the, the catch is that for this to work, the error rate of qubits has to be sufficiently small to begin with, because what you're doing, you're smearing the information of one qubit over several qubits. And so by introducing more qubits into the problem, you could be making the problem worse because you're adding more potential sources of error. And so the error has to be really small to begin with for this to work. And only just now, in the past few months, have we actually hit that critical point where we can do this, this quantum error correction. And so, yeah. You know that's uh, that's super interesting. Um, let's let's bring it a little bit back to uh, to use cases, just so that we can motivate why why we are delving into this in in, in some uh, some detail. So one one question around quantum computing is is obviously well, okay. So you're making all this progress, and now potentially you have uh, you know all this computing power available. What would you do with it? What would you do with it? But first of all, what kind of computing power do we right now this month have available? So, so what exactly can we do right now? And then let's talk about what you envision as the very important things that could be done with it, you know, uh, very, very soon. Sure, sure. So right now, we can do interesting things. I, I wouldn't say that they're quite co commercially practical. They're not things that a, a company would pay for today. In about two years we expect that to change. And I know most people hearing that are probably shocked because they probably think of quantum computing as like some science fiction thing which might be relevant in 20 years. No, I, I, I'm also shocked. I mean, yeah. you know, we had a prep call. This is shocking because it's almost like, it. I feel like if you weren't reading 
the papers saw the announcements over the summer even, you might even say, well, it's if you're optimistic, it's like five years away and realistically it's 10 years away. I mean, basically, if I did this prep in the early stages of this year, you might tell me that. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the reason that, that it's surprising is because most people have probably heard of Moore's Law, which, which we've seen classical computing, normal computing, it's doubled in power about every 18 months. Right. Quantum has increased in power by about a factor of 10 every year. Yeah. So, that, so that means that in, in one year, it's 10x. In two years, it's 100x. In three years, it's 1,000x. And so... Yeah. As I said, it's been about 10 years since we had a, a breakthrough in the beginning of the commercial sector. And so if you think about a 10x increase every year, at least the past several years, um, that's, that's huge. And that's why where we are today, if we are a, in two years from now, if we're 100 times that, we think we will have commercial applications. So things that companies would actually pay to do on a quantum computer that could not be done otherwise. And so, so I think that that's, yeah, it's pretty shocking if you're not closely intertwined with the industry. I mean, at this point, I have so many questions. Let's jump then to just some of the things that you're actually doing right now, this month, this year. What, what are the things you, you, you said you're, you, that aren't perhaps commercially interesting, but you know, what kinds of things can you currently do? I'm just trying to get a sense sure. of sure what what this is now being used for right now, even as you're experimenting. Sure, sure. So things that we're doing right now we're developing the technologies, both the hardware and the software, so that we'll be well positioned in, in about two years. So things that we're working on right now, chemistry is, is something that I mentioned earlier. That was the first thing um, thought about by Feynman, and it's one of the main applications of quantum, is that we can efficiently do these chemistry simulations. And so something that we have been working on, uh, we had a project with Airbus and BMW to study batteries. So batteries are it's just a chemical process and so it's actually the catalysis of this that this is the limiting factor in a battery and so by studying the chemical interactions of that we're trying to make it more efficient um this this would obviously have a huge impact in aerospace and automotive and yeah i mean to be to be honest even small improvements right you're not talking 10x here but even a 3x improvement in a battery would make leaps tre and tre like tremendous would change yeah. transportation applications and uh, you know such Tremendous, yeah. There is, there's been gradual progress, improvement in batteries every year. Um, people probably aren't aware of it; they just kind of take it for granted that your your laptop gets more powerful and uses more energy. The battery also gets a little bit better every year, and so a little bit, yes. Li but I mean, bit. that is one yeah. sector where people have said, "Oh, we will make these fantastic batteries." Yeah. That hasn't really happened yet. Ex exactly, the batteries are basically the same as they were years ago. But if we could make significant improvements, that that would impacts a lot of industries so that's that's right. one thing is is with that um another area um is cybersecurity, and i know that a lot of listeners probably um if, if there's one thing they know about quantum computing it's that it has something to do with cybersecurity. well they're dead scared of it because if they are running a system they're thinking you know it breaks my encryption that, that's, it, that's right trouble it, it, it is unfortunate that the one thing that people know about quantum it's it sort of sinister sounding um and, and that's true there is a reason for this and we can go into that later but what a lot of people don't know is that quantum computing can also help with cybersecurity; it can be used to protect communication and so one thing that we've already done is that we've produced a way of, of producing provably secure keys 
so so in in this context, a key is it's a string of numbers that you use to feed into a formula to do the encryption or the decryption. And of course, it's important that it's it's not known by anyone except you or the the person that you want to receive your message. Because if someone knew the key, then that's as good as having no encryption at all. And so a, a lot of people overlook the source of the key. They think, well, it's it looks random enough to me. And and so I'm sure it's fine, but that's that's just not true in a lot of cases. And so we've produced a way of having quantum computers produce provably secure keys where there is a mathematical check that you can do to make sure that no one could possibly know what that key is. So that is the creation of the key, but does that mean, and that could be a service. So it doesn't mean that everybody who is using encryption or has a security solution would necessarily need to have a quantum that's, computer that's, themselves. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's producing these keys. And once you've produced it and you, you can do this check to make sure it's secure, then you don't really care where it came from. You just have, you have a database, if you will, of keys that you could use for your, your cybersecurity system. Um, and so you wouldn't need to be a quantum computing expert to use that. You would just need to be a cybersecurity expert. Got it. But does that take care of some of the fears people have, or is it just a, a start? Because you know, it's a big field. Cybersecurity is a massive field. Many, you know, many many actors, obviously, many bad actors that are causing this enormous expansion of of, of these security firms. It's it's not a small issue. It, w- it was never a small issue in the first place. And quantum is just one more, uh, you know, challenge. And 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 the question is, of course, when will that be a true true challenge? Yeah. So so that that's exactly right. It so this the service that I've just mentioned. It doesn't solve all of those problems. Right. But it, it will be an essential component in whatever happens. So another thing that someone could do, they will need to upgrade to what's called post-quantum encryption. So these are different encryption formulas, the, the lock part of this. These are different encryption formulas, which are based on mathematics that we don't think quantum computers can hack. And I, I emphasized, we don't think, because it, this is an active investigation right now. There's actually a contest going on. Um, there's a government agency called NIST, which is holding a contest where people are, are submitting things and, and people are testing them. And so that's that's going to be another essential component of it. Um, the secure key generation we have today as a service. And mm-hmm. so um, so yes, these will all be very important issues that people will have to to think about if they're in a position to upgrade their security system. I wanted to talk about one more use case, and then I, I want to kind of jump to uh, something that I think people are thinking about. I'm at least, uh, w- which comes to you know the combination of quantum with other existing or emerging technologies, and I, I guess this example is one of those. But I want to I want to talk a little bit about medicine. So yeah. we have this vision of personalized medicine, and you know, for the lucky few who are in clinical trials with you know, advanced uh, cancer medicine that where they are sequencing the genome and actually producing individual therapies. That's sort of one one example, but that's a so far, right? It hasn't gone mass market. It's a very limited application. Where do you see, if at all, quantum playing a role here? Because presumably there's big computers, that's some of the major health systems, and, and there could be maybe something to do there. Yes, so it is certainly true that that computers are used in the healthcare field and they're used by pharmaceutical companies when they develop a medicine. 
But the problem is that those are all traditional computing, as we say, classical computing. And so they're very limited by how, how much of the calculation they can do when it comes to doing these, these chemical simulations and such for medicine. So with a quantum computer, what a pharmaceutical company could do is they could very quickly hone in on the most promising drugs by, by modeling on the computer first. This is what the property of the, the molecule, the drug would be. They could hone in on the, the most promising drugs. They could do the clinical trials for those, but it would be cheaper and faster and less risky for patients. And so, so that's something that, that we hope to, to do in the near term. A longer term vision is, as, as you said, personalized medicine, where you would actually design a medicine just for that person because your genes are different from my genes. And so a medicine will affect you differently than it will affect me. And so if we could design a medicine to treat someone's medical condition, taking into account their genetics, that would be the ideal case. But of course, that would be absolutely impossible by today's technology. And, and so it, the dream is that maybe someday we could use quantum computers to do that. Hmm. Can you give a, a realistic sense to people about, so who is doing quantum these days? I want to I take some of these use cases a little into the future, but I, I'm just still trying to understand where we are right now. So without going into you know, commercial detail, uh, how many players are there in quantum so you guys are an example of kind of a hybrid player connected both to a larger company and also obviously coming out of a another sort of startup environment but if you if you just describe the space more broadly so obviously big companies big tech companies have a stake in in, in quantum they're they're looking at the next generation of compute they want to be there yep um small startups are obviously coming out of universities using physics, other approaches, trying to, to innovate in this space. Uh, I don't know others. Governments, per se, have, have their own computing infrastructures. Give me uh, just a little paint a picture of, of what it looks like. The, the, so everything you said is exactly right. So Continuum, who I work for, we have a very unique origin story in that we were the merger between Cambridge Quantum Computing, which was a, a startup in the UK which focused on quantum software, and Honeywell's quantum team, which developed quantum hardware. And they had a partnership, and it went so well that Honeywell spun out their quantum group, which merged with Cambridge Quantum to form Continuum. There are, as you said, there are several co large corporations which have quantum divisions. So Google and IBM would be, would be obvious examples, as well as Microsoft. Um, there's many startups. Some came out of, uh, out of academic groups. Some uh, were, were just formed organically. Um, there are hundreds of companies. I, I have a slide somewhere. Um, it was put together by a consulting firm, I think, where they they assembled the logos of the of the quantum ecosystem, and it wasn't even the complete picture. And, and there's hundreds of logos, and it, and it's just amazing because I also have a a sheet of the ecosystem from ten years ago, and there were maybe ten companies on right. it. Right, and that that was it. Ten years ago, there were like ten credible quantum companies, and now there's hundreds, and I. I know some, but I, I obviously don't know all of them. And th there's the obvious focus areas. There's some doing hardware. There's some doing software. But there's also these all these related fields. There are lawyers now specializing in quantum technology. There's PR specialists focusing on quantum. There's people on um, quantum education, like training people to learn how to program quantum computers. Um, so there's 
ecosystem is, is a very good term. There's all these related fields now. Um, the government is certainly getting involved and they're, they're getting more involved depending on which government you ask. Um, America, the, the U.S. government, they have been involved, not as much as they should be. Um, I, I hope that they step up more. The European government seem to be better at this. China is very invested in this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, over there, it's, it's obviously different. The government and the private sector and the military are all much closer intertwined. Um, China is spending huge amounts of money, especially on quantum communication. So, so they do have a quantum computing field, um, but they seem to be more focused on the communication side of it, using quantum technologies to, uh, to transmit information. Let's talk about AI for a second. It's very trendy to talk about AI um, for a number of reasons, but notably because there was a little killer application this spring that suddenly got everyone's attention. Uh, What are the existing relationships between AI, however you want to define it, and quantum? And and what do you see emerging? Yes, uh, um, I'm glad you asked that because this is the question that everyone has asked me this year. Um, but but by far, yeah. this is the most common question, and, and for good reason. And this has been such a good example of something where I think people were vaguely aware of AI, and, and, and people were actually using it without knowing it a lot of times. If you use Netflix, the recommendations that it makes to you are AI, right? Um, but, but I think it didn't seem magical in the way that ChatGPT and, and related things have this because that, that just seems amazing. How could it possibly do that? It's a great example because it's like for years, even decades, the technology got better and better until suddenly one day there's this killer app that seems amazing. And, and I think quantum is going to be a lot like that. We're, we're building up to it. And then in just a few years, we're going to have something which blows everyone's mind. So what is the relation between AI and quantum? AI is really based on machine learning. So AI sounds cooler to say, but... It's based on machine learning, which is it's just algorithms which use past data to try to predict future events. And so, so that's all just mathematics, and it, and it has all these probabilities that it has to go through. There is now a field called quantum machine learning, and it's based on different mathematics. So instead of probabilities, it uses something called an amplitude um, for, for the mathematically savvy listener. So it, it's like a, a vector or a, just an arrow. Um, but it's different mathematics, which is more subtle. It, it, it can do other things, and it can pick up patterns that would have been missed by normal machine learning methods. And so there will be a whole field of quantum AI based on this. Mm. And we expect that to, to really be the true AI. And, and actually, we even have a, a team at Continuum focused on this type of, of generalized understanding. And how, how do quantum computers really think and understand things? And so this actually was a question I had because in in a very simple way could could you think of quantum as another generation of computer hardware or is it like you're explaining me to me now there's a hybrid situation going on because the algorithms all of the soft stuff also changes it's not like it this is just the infrastructure you're but, telling me there's more than that could, could, yeah it's completely different um so the hardware is obviously completely different. These qubits are physically very different from normal bits, which are just transistors. And the software is also completely different because the software right. has, has to pose the problem in a way that the quantum computer can do. So 
you certainly can't just take your existing software and then run it on a quantum computer and expect it to be a million times faster. Quantum algorithms. But presumably, people or you, you even are working on converters between the two systems because you, you're going to be using data generated in an older age. Yes, to, so, to run your analysis. So, so it, it is true that sometimes we can just plug in a new algorithm, a, a new quantum algorithm, into the existing stuff. Um, what will what will happen more generally is that we will have this hybrid system where someone will use a, a CPU and possibly a GPU as they do nowadays, and a QPU, de depending on the exact calculation that needs to be done, and then the program will synthesize everything at the end. And so, so yeah, we will always need normal computers. Uh, quantum will not replace classical computing, but it will augment it, because there, there are certain types of problems that could only be done with a quantum computer. So you say that pretty confidently, it will never replace. But is there a world, and let's just jump into the future for, for a second, where quantum will be so generalized as a method that it's so universally available, the infrastructure is just there, that we actually start using it? You know, because you, you sort of, you know, you, you're the futurist here in, in this room when we're talking about quantum, but yet you do sound a little bit like that guy who said there's only ever going to be one computer. So I feel sometimes that these quantum people, and I don't want to pigeonhole you in there, but you're, you're sort of saying two things. You're like, hey, we're doing something fantastic, but it's kind of special. Well, how long can it afford to be special is actually my more commercial question. Because if it is so specialized, won't we just be forever very expensive like a supercomputer is today? So yes, okay, there's a number of supercomputers today, but they in all honesty, have a ve very limited application because they're enormously expensive to make. And, you know, once you've made one, it's obsolete because an, a new one will come up and then, you know, your press release is sort of nice, but, you know, someone can do then 10x, you know, weather model and, you know, your some other intelligence agency has a much more powerful one. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit and, you know, it's an interesting space supercomputers, but is this at all analogous to that or is there much more of a collaboration going on between these systems than between sort of classical compute and, and supercompute, which I may be wrongly perceive to be, you know, two very distinct worlds. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll address the second point first. Um, the, so the, the personal the, computer for quantum, to be very so, so, specific. So, so it is true that right now it is quite expensive because it's it's very customized. We're we're still researching it. The, the laboratories in which we build these quantum computers, it looks like. The pictures you've seen in history books of, of computers in the olden days with their huge machines with wires sticking out and the, the engineers are there with the screwdrivers adjusting things. That is still how it is right now. Fortunately, right. now we have an internet to access them. So, so you can mm -hmm. access them from home. You don't need to be in the lab. Um, that will obviously, the price will come way down, uh, obviously, as technology gets better. And it's already much more affordable than it was just a few years ago. Um, and so you can you can access it through the the cloud and you can rent time so you don't you don't need to have a huge budget to use it in fact some companies like ibm they've already made theirs available for free on the internet you can use some of ibm's lower end machines um you can access ours through like oak ridge national labs and and such so there, there are affordable ways of doing it back to your original first point about why do i sound confident that a, a quantum computer will never replace classical the, the nature of a quantum computer is such that things are kind of indefinite. This is the nature of quantum physics. And so this, on one hand, the advantage is that it can much more quickly solve problems. 
Um, but mm. because it can consider many cases at once and it can hone in on, on the correct answer, um, this leads to, to huge speed up for certain types of problems. But it also means that other problems where you need a definite answer with no uncertainty, those are not problems that would be good on a quantum computer. It just can't do that. And so like accounting software, if you have to add up numbers and you have to absolutely get it correct, that would not be good for a quantum computer. But if you, like the example I gave before, like chemistry, if you want to figure out what is the, the lowest energy configuration of some molecule, that a quantum computer would be very good at because it can get very close to it and figure out what the correct answer is. And so there, there's just different types of problems that are that are good for classical versus quantum. And we're still figuring out what that map looks like. There's actually not yet a, a general consensus. We, we don't know. Things are still too new um, because there have been some surprises. There are, th- there are cases where we thought only a quantum computer would be good for solving this. And then it turns out there actually was a clever way for classical and vice versa. And so, yeah, I'm more asking the other question, which is, you know, in the same way that people thought, well, you know, I, I'm going to have no use for a supercomputer. Yeah. Essentially, an iPhone or, or any phone it is a little bit of a supercomputer, right? Yeah. It is certainly a very, very efficient computer. And people, surprisingly, are, have, a, are, have a use for well, it. Well, they're using it. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, they have absolutely. some use for it because there, there are applications that that call for it, and people get excited. And, and you know, there are issues in modern life where you need these algorithms, that, or you certainly can make use of them, even for pedestrian things like choosing a, a, a movie for the evening or something. Exactly. Yes. Um, it, it is entirely possible. In fact, I, I believe we will have personalized quantum computers. Not, not in the next few years. But down the road, um, certain types of technology lend themselves better to being portable. Um, so, so it won't be all types, but it is possible. And, and I expect that once we become more familiar with the different use cases, people, oh, what? Um, there's a famous quote by, by Henry Ford. Um, he, he said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Like sometimes people don't know what they want until you've already given it to them. Then they suddenly realize, yes, this is what I needed all along. And so right now people can can uh, feel justified in saying, I don't need a quantum computer. But once we've built them and they can see what it can do, they probably will want it. And it, it might be as simple as when you when you um, are using your map application and you're you're saying, well, what's the shortest route from A to B? That's something that a quantum computer would be good at. And when you when you do it on your phone, you're probably calling back to say Google's computers, which are doing the calculation, not your phone. It just sends the answer to your phone. But it might be that you have a, a quantum computer on your phone to do that type of calculation right there for you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, yeah, there's things that people might find that they need. So, what about the really big things? So, we have talked about well, personalized medicine is important, right? It's people's health uh, and and longevity and other things. But w- what about things like climate change? That so obviously is complex. Meaning, you know, there's a system out there that's super advanced, and any intervention we do on that system, uh, we don't even understand the system. There's many, many systems. There's ecology, then there's our responses to it, then there is, you know, how technology progresses around it. So many people would say, you know, it's a complex adaptive system. 
there are very few computers where you can put in even just a few parameters and say, run this and simulate a world. Right? Yeah. We can barely simulate an individual molecule person yeah. or a molecule or a yeast, you yeah. know, whatever. So w- when would we get to a meaningful scale where we can simulate world systems? And I'm not just talking about wet weather models for the next week, but, you know, serious, serious simulation of options that are relevant to things like climate change in, in a historical and, you know, futuristic sense. Sure. Uh, I'll answer that. Um, first, I, I want to just preface it by saying, unfortunately, with climate change, the problem is not a scientific one, it's a political one. We, we have known for some time what the problem is. We just seem to lack the political will to do something meaningful about it. And, and well, I'm, that's true, but I mean, there are also problems that are too expensive to solve, or, or we may not actually know exactly what the problem is. We might have mischaracterized the problem. The, so I'm just saying there are mul- multiple use cases still. But so, yes, you're, you're right. If we just, we could do something if we just decided to do so. It's, yes. however, very yeah. costly economically, yes, yeah. which, which does matter. Yeah, yeah. No, quantum computers can't change the political mindset. But in terms of the scientific accomplishments, there, there are absolutely things that we think could help. Um, I, I don't want to mislead people and give the impression that, that this could help in the next few years. These are longer term things. But, but let me give some examples. So one thing is, as you just said, uh, weather modeling. So these are these are very complicated partial differential nonlinear equations. Um, it is expected that quantum computers could help a lot with that. They could they could solve these systems of, of complicated equations more efficiently and and come up with more accurate weather prediction algorithms. Um, I, I've already mentioned batteries as something. Another thing which might sound surprising is fertilizer, and. This is because about 2% of the world's energy supply goes into making fertilizer, and it's a very inefficient process. It hasn't changed much in 150 years. It's called the Haber-Bosch process, and it's, it's very expensive. It's bad for the environment. Um, there's all sorts of problems with it, and we know that bacteria are better at doing this than we are. We just don't know exactly how they do it. It has something to do with this, this one particular chemical reaction, but we don't know exactly what's happening. And so what we would love to do is to model this chemical reaction on a quantum computer to figure out how bacteria do this. And then we, I think the term is biomimicry, that we we kind of figure out how to do this synthetically. And um, it, it will take a long time. These are very large molecules. And so we're several years from being able to do that. But that's an example of how a quantum computer might be able to help with that sort of thing. I only have a, a, a few last questions. So I wonder, you know, these things, they're both tantalizingly kind of complex. And they're also, when you were explaining them to me, they, they sound sort of like, at, at a certain intuitive level, they're, they're also fairly simple. Like many, many things can be described at a simple level and a complex level. And you said, you know, that's perhaps how you, you know, what you excel at is that you can find the level and then, and then do that. If you now want to speak to sort of uh, teenagers or people in current, you know, in school, what is the approach here? So they will presumably within the timelines we've kind of talked about. So if this progresses this fast, what does it make sense for them to do to explore this both intellectually and in terms of how it's going to affect their career or indeed affect the world because you know these people will be 
uh, alive for uh, decades and maybe 50, 60, 70, 100 years. What does it make sense to do now if yeah. you want to capture this opportunity? So, so the, the teenagers and the, the young students watching this now are they're very lucky because they're in exactly the right place at the right time um, to, to really take advantage of this. So we're, we're kind of developing these core technologies now, but they're the ones who will really bring this to something amazing. And I also will add, you've asked about the use cases and I've kind of given examples because these are things that we already know are important, but the, the real killer app probably hasn't been invented yet. It's probably going to be someone in high school in a few years, we'll realize why wasn't someone doing this all along? And and so that that the killer app hasn't been invented. It will be someone young watching this. What can they do now to do this? First, take all the science that you can, all, all the science and the mathematics, because that's the language that we we program in for quantum computing. It is a little more involved than for a normal computer programming, um, because you have to have an understanding of quantum physics, which is really based on linear algebra. Once they do that, I would encourage them to just learn about the different companies and things that that different people are working on. And I would encourage them to do some sort of internship or project with a company or with a a local university group or something. Um, We have internships. I know many other companies have internships. Uh, Things like this to get actual hands-on experience. Um, it's, It's important that they take classes and they do well, but we also want to see that they can actually work through challenges and problems and, and, they, and work in a team and all of these kind of practical things um, because, because we're, you know, we're companies and we have to build products and, and we have clients and we have to deliver on milestones and things. And so we, we would love to see them actually doing things in the real world. Yeah, I have to say, I don't envy educators these days. You know, being one myself, it's exciting, but certainly at the lower levels in, you know, you know pre-university level, it's really hard to update the curriculum and then still follow, you know, whatever rules there are for what you should be teaching people. That's a little bit easier in universities because you have a, a much more flexibility, but this is arguably moving yeah. so fast that, yeah. like you said, internships in, in companies might just be, or listening to podcasts might be uh, a good way to go here. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Because how would... else do you even track what's, what you just told me, which was not knowledge six months ago? That's, that's fast. Yeah, you're exactly right. Even at the university level, it's only now that they're developing degrees and, and certificates and specializations in quantum computing because this didn't exist just a few years ago. Um, it, w- it was only a, a few people that were thinking about these in the abstract, let alone actually doing this. Um, I can't even imagine how a high school teacher would, would incorporate this into the curriculum. I, I guess they can, they can learn about quantum computing and some of the concepts and things, and maybe... The, the really talented students could actually write some quantum programs and access it through some of the simulators or um, or machines online and such. But um, but yeah, things are are changing very rapidly. But a, a solid background in math and physics and other sciences, and com- including computer science, will never do you wrong. You should absolutely understand those very very well in order to do this. Mark, it's, it's fascinating to, to listen to you. Uh, I'm glad 
that we had this conversation and I feel somewhat more informed, but it, it seems to me that it, it, this is not a topic where one podcast will do it all justice. So maybe you, you'd do me the favor of, of coming back when, when there's some new major thing on the, uh, on the agenda. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, I would say maybe in about six months, we'll probably have some more breakthroughs that we could talk about, which didn't exist today. So of, of course, I'd be glad to come back. All right. Well, super exciting. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, have a great day. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Trond. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurize podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.